Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Today, we have our editorial roundup with Brian Marshauser. He's the editor of Yorktown News and the Capone Lewis Pro Times. We have Tom Walagorski, the editor of North Salem News and the Somers Record, and Bob Dumas, editor of Mayapac News. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Very good to be here. We'll start a little bit by, uh, uh, I guess there was some flooding. Um, I know around Lake Mayapac, you know, I know that's always a big flooding area. Bob, if you can speak to that at all. Well, yeah. I mean, and that was an issue when the town sought to buy the uh, Swan Cove property and the parking lot parcels uh, next to the bank and where the old Chamber of Commerce building was. It, people criticized the move and they were like, don't you know this area floods? And yeah, that area floods every time there is a, a significant rainstorm. Of course, you know, the engineers plan on fixing that and repairing that through a lot of different ways once the park and the parking lot start going in. But yeah, that whole area down through there, because it's all downhill from Route 6, you know, as you head into the business district. So the water just cascades down there. And, I, you know, I haven't been able to see it, obviously, yet today. But from what I'm told, it's a mess up down there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's some events also coming up. This episode is going to be released uh, the week of uh, September 6th, and that's right ahead of the uh, 9-11 anniversaries. I know, Tom, you were talking to me a little bit about uh, what's going on in your towns with that. Yeah, both uh, both North Salem and Somers, they're going to be having um, 9-11 remembrance ceremonies just, uh, you know, in honor of uh, just what happened in the 20th anniversary and everything. For Somers, it'll be at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning at Bailey Park, uh, directly adjacent to the Elephant Hotel, and uh, have a keynote address by uh, Doris Jane Smith. She's the town historian. And um, North Salem's will be uh, later that evening at 6 o'clock at the um, North Salem Firehouse on uh, Titicus Road. And the uh, keynote speaker will be Supervisor Warren Lucas. And I'm assuming this is on September 11th itself. Both will be on uh, Saturday, September 11th. Okay, all right. So just a you know nice way for the community to come out and pay their respects. And, and there's another uh, big event coming up in uh, the town of Somers, right? Absolutely. We was just uh, actually just announced yesterday that the uh, town of Somers will be having the Big Bang Fireworks Celebration. That'll be coming on Saturday, September 18th, five o'clock at uh, Reese Park. Live music, food, great place for the uh, community to gather. We're actually still working on getting some more details about that, but uh, just you know, every everybody very excited about it already. It'll be kind of like a nice one one last little summer style event before uh, before we roll into the fall here. And I guess I'm going to surmise that probably has a little bit to do, do with, you know, the fact that there's been COVID and I know that the, they've had some muted 4th of July festivities over the last couple of years. So I'm speculating it's probably a little bit, you know, in lieu of some of that stuff that's been missed. Oh, absolutely. Just all, all the events that have been postponed for really the past, uh, you know, the past year here. Yeah, absolutely. And Brian, I think you have a very powerful front page in Yorktown News this week, you know, the empty seats for the 13 soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan at the Lions concert. It was just a really powerful image, uh, you know, so uh, you know, I really appreciate what you did there this week. And uh, Yorktown Lions Club had actually planned their military tribute night before that happened. So it was just 
it was coincidental in some ways that it was the final scheduled concert of their summer concert series, which is six concerts. The over-the-top band filled in for class action, which could not perform. And before the show started, before everyone enjoyed some rock and roll tunes, they held a moment of silence for the 13 service members who died in Afghanistan on August 26th. And as a gesture to those service members, they laid out a table with 13 chairs. They gave them the best seats in the house. And uh, I thought it was a very nice gesture, a very powerful gesture, and a nice way to wrap up the summer concert series. Ryan, also, I thought a very interesting story that we published in all five of our newspapers about the uh, Department of Transportation plans or proposals for 684, Route 684, uh, if you can speak to that. Yeah, Tom Bartley, for he's our writer for Halston Media. He's excellent. Uh, he covered this story for us. So basically, the New York State Department of Transportation concluded its study, which was, I think, many, many, many months in the making. And they concluded that the best option to ease rush hour congestion would be to add a fourth lane for rush hour traffic. But it's not a permanent lane in both directions. This would be kind of a flexible lane. You know, southbound in the morning, it would be a fourth lane. And then northbound in the evening, it would be a fourth lane. Kind of like what they used to do at the Tappan Zee Bridge. Right. Yeah. So it would be the shoulder in the middle of the uh, two lanes I'm assuming they would use. And yeah, so in, in for rush hour traffic in the morning, heading southbound, that you'll have four lanes and then it'll switch over and then it'll be northbound. You'll have four lanes. I'm not totally convinced that it's going to solve the problem of Route 684 going north when you merge onto 84. 84 is a major highway. And that's just, that's, uh, I guess, the exit lane. First of all, everybody right. cheats on that exit lane where they, they go in the middle lanes and then they try to sneak over last minute. You know, so I, I actually would love to see maybe like two lanes devoted to getting onto Route 84. I don't know if they spoke at all about that. They mentioned they want to fix that odd switchover on 35. I know when you're when you're uh, entering 684 from 35, they have that odd switchover with the sawmill on 684. Around where Katona is, yeah. I know they said they wanted to fix that, but I don't think they addressed that. But I know that this is... So this is, to put in context where we're talking about, this is the 12 miles on 684 from Katona to I-84 and Brewster, and then three miles of I-84 east to the Connecticut line. Yeah. Those are the 15 miles of road they're talking about addressing here. Well, I've never had any problems merging on a 684 from uh, from the sawmill, but I will tell you, I get anxiety. In fact, I've decided sometimes when I get home is I have to take 84. I've decided sometimes to actually go on side roads. I'll add maybe 15, 20 minutes to my commute just to avoid the aggravation of going on 684 to uh, and merging on to 84. That's just a... Yeah, it's it's it's, 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 it's stress at the wrong time. Yeah. it's a nightmare. Uh, I know we have my wife's aunt lives in uh, Danbury, so you know yeah. we went to visit her a couple weekends ago, and we were stuck in that Saturday traffic. At just and we had we eventually had to go around, but it was just too bad. The way to go around that is basically going through Cross River and then into uh, Ridgefield, and then then hop on, you know, go on to Danbury. Right. So, yeah. Uh, I have a question about this because it was brought up by people who were reading it and made comments mm-hmm. on our Facebook page. And, I, I, you know, 684 and 84 are federal roads, right? They're part of the uh, federal highway system. So why is New York State DOT involved in this? And shouldn't this be part of the federal infrastructure bill that Biden put forth, you know, because they are the red, white and blue signs. Yeah, they're federal roads, you know. The good question that I don't have the answer for at this moment. Yeah. Okay. I think um, if I had to, this is just my just me surmising. I mm. think the Department of Transportation on the federal level, I don't know if they actually do 
construction work themselves. I, I think a lot of it is just them funding the states. And, you know, I know uh, they famously raised, and again, you know, I, I can't speak to the year and exactly how they did this, but I know at some point the um, age limit for alcohol was 18 in various states and basically all states raised it to 21. And I believe it was because the federal department of transportation basically said, we're not going to give you highway funds if you don't raise your alcohol age limit to 21. So I'm assuming it's more about funding the states. I could be wrong. So I'm wondering if some of this bill would be fronted by, uh, you know, uh, by some of that infrastructure money on the federal level. Um, well, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, just to give some context, uh, I don't think we mentioned it, but the, for what we're discussing, that fourth lane, the DOT estimated it would cost as much as $600 million. And that's actually a more affordable option as compared to adding a permanent lane in both directions, which would uh, require widening of the road. They estimated that about $800 to $900 million. So yeah. they, that, they shelved that option. It just shows you how expensive all these projects are, you know, oh, yeah. if we start doing stuff nationwide, you know, the, I mean, stuff that needs to be done, but it's, it's mind blowing how much this stuff costs. Well, when somebody suggests to me, our roads aren't paved or, you know, it's our road hasn't been paved in 10 years and they want more money for paving it. Well, it would cost, I think, $40 million to pave the whole town in Yorktown, something like that. Paving alone is uh, very costly. And I can't imagine the cost of doing something like this. Well, I guess I can't imagine they gave us the number, but yeah, it's very expensive. I've, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you something. I've always gotten very angry about state roads. And um, I would love to see one of these years, a town just decide to take care of a state road and then withhold money to the state and basically tell Albany to go screw themselves because they're not doing a good job locally. Well, maybe you can run for office and try it one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll be the platform that you run on. <laughs> Yeah, you've told me of that plan before. It gets me very aggravated. And I'll tell you something else. I'm living in Connecticut now, I will tell you, the moment you drive over into Connecticut, the roads are so much better. And I really do think it has to do with, you know, just how Albany is run versus how uh, Hartford is run. So that's my opinion. So, uh, Tom, I also wanted to ask you, I know that there's some big news with the Schoolhouse Theater in North Salem. Yeah, yeah, very big, exciting. This is going to be our big story for our next issue coming out. But the uh, the town of North Salem has official has voted officially now to um, take on ownership of the Schoolhouse Theater. Schoolhouse Theater, there's a lot of history there. It's the oldest professional theater in Westchester. Purchase price eight hundred thousand dollars, a little less than it was appraised and valued at, which is uh, which is good. And this is one of those awesome situations where it's going to be you know a, a very big win for everybody. I know that the um, town board is excited about it, and the theater troupe that was meeting there, they will be allowed to continue. And it's going to be used as a community center, senior center. So it'll be used for a lot of different programs. They said they already have uh, a lot of interest from different things. So this is going to be a, uh, it's, it's kind of a happy ending for everybody. This has been kind of a story that we've been following for um, for a while now. And uh, you know, especially over the past couple of years, just the different iterations and what was going to happen with the theater and especially with COVID and everything. So it's an exciting development. Are they going to still attract some of the popular plays that they do? And is that part of the plan? I mean, you said there's a feeder troop that's still going to operate out of there, but um, just curious, I guess, how feeder is going to continue. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there was still there was a big fundraiser that was going to actually to, you know raise money for the um for the theater and everything, and that's uh, that's still scheduled going forward. You know, they're they're working out the logistics of it now. Now that the ownership has changed, but yeah, it's just great that they you know they're still going to have a place to perform and they're still going to attract those you know those kind of acts and everything. Great, that's fantastic. And uh, Brian, going back to you, uh, just 
talking about Yorktown, I know it's been nine months since the arrest of former town highway superintendent and uh, former Yorktown Chamber of Commerce president, Eric DiBartolo. So just curious, I guess you're getting some inquiries about that. Yeah, whether, you know, in person or via email, it's one of the most asked questions to me. So for context, he was arrested in mid-January, Eric DiBartolo, and charged with uh, several counts of uh, larceny, which was just eventually folded into one count of grand larceny. Uh, He's accused of stealing about $15,000 worth of merchandise from the Home Depot in Cortland. He allegedly worked in concert with an employee to do this skip and scam thing where he would bring his items to the cash register. The guy would scan only one or two of the items in a full card and he would walk out with the rest. That's what he's accused of doing. When it comes to this case, he was arrested in January, arraigned in February, and now it's been adjourned just half dozen times. It's a little frustrating to be on the outside looking in, not knowing what's been discussed. When people reach out to me and ask what's going on, I have to kind of shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. We're not really privy to those discussions that I imagine his attorney is having with the DA's office. I mean, I don't imagine. I know that's what's happened a few times, but you know, that's where they have these conferences with his attorney, the DA's office, the judge. And uh, I guess they're kind of working on a deal. Who knows when that's going to happen? But yeah, the next court date as of this uh, recording is September 23rd. The cynic in me says it'll probably be adjourned again. And we probably won't be told much again. But I, I reached out to the judge over there in Cortland to find out if she can provide any explanation for what's going on. Because I think people want to know. When cases like this are discussed out of the public eye for nine, 10 months, uh, it doesn't feel like justice to people. I think that's the problem. Absolutely. Actually, I want to go back to Bob. I know uh, you're working on something for your front page. It was submitted to you uh, by the county. And Bob, I'm going to ask you to unmute yourself because I, I just muted you while you were coughing. You have to unmute yourself so you can talk. I'm sorry. I have coughing fits every now and then, and they just come out of left field. So and, and actually, I just want to let our audience know that Bob is a very dedicated individual. It's a little bit of a challenge of... Uh, of running a small business, you know, with community journalism, you know, we're very tiny staff, small business and a small business. Very often when you get sick, you power through things. And I will tell you, Bob has been a trooper through uh, a heart attack and some other severe stuff going on earlier this year to now what seems to be COVID. Bob is still powering through. So Bob, thank you for your dedication to this. Well, you're welcome. I I have a lot on my to-do list I need to check off, so I'm finally happy to get COVID out of the way. But um, it's been a week (laughs) since it hit me, and um, this is the first day in maybe a week that I felt you know semi-normal. I'm not 100% yet, but the thing about COVID is not only does it come with its own weird set of symptoms, but it also will exacerbate anything else that you already have, like any kind of inflammation that you're dealing with. And that's exactly what's happened to me, but I'm happy to... Re- and so I, you know, I had problems with swelling in my legs due to the congestive heart failure and other contributions. And so and I had made a lot of progress on that and I had gotten them almost back to normal again over the last couple of months. And then all of a sudden last week I woke up and they were back to the size of like telephone poles. And I was just devastated because I thought it was such a setback. But I'm happy to report I woke up this morning and swung out of bed and the swelling has all dissipated again. Thank God. And thanks to uh, Halston Media's amateur epidemiologist Gabby Billick, she was the one that does all this research for me and (laughs) discovered that. And so anyway, 
you know, I still kind of feel like I went 15 rounds with Floyd Merriweather, you know, I'm sore and stuff like that, but the fever is gone and my appetite is slowly returning. So anyway, that's the latest health update for me. It seems like I'm always given one. Did you lose your sense of uh, smell and taste? I did not. I did not lose the sense of smell and taste, but I did lose my appetite. I just was not interested in eating. And then like as the days would progress, I would wake up and go, oh, I feel kind of hungry. And then I would fix myself something to eat. And then I'd look at it and go, nah, you know, <laughs> and today, you know, it comes, it, you know, it feels like it's coming back and then, and then it falls by the wayside again. It's weird. You know, you start feeling better and then like the day moves on, then you feel like crap again. So it's like up and down. So I felt pretty good this morning when I got up, I got my fingers crossed. I don't want to jinx it. I want to keep going in that direction, but it's been a week. And I got to tell you the people who, you know, I was vaccinated and the people who went through this with the hardcore COVID, my heart goes out to them because I apparently had a mild case of it. And if this was mild, so, you know, I have to quarantine now 14 days. Is um, it 14 days? Because So um, my wife, Lauren, she uh, had COVID and she got it. Let's see. I think it was the August 22nd. And she was, I think, told that after 10 days, um, no, it's 14 days. You're right. I apologize. After 14 days of having no symptoms, if your symptoms are getting better on, I guess, the 14th day, then you're sort of officially out of quarantine. Lauren's the same way. She's working. And, uh, you know, after a few hours, she's just exhausted. Well, I want to, you know, err on the side of safety. So I'll go as long and was trying to figure out, like, when do you put the marker from when? Because like there's an incubation period of five days or or four or five days from when you get it to when the symptoms start to manifest themselves. So it happened last Friday, which meant that I was exposed Monday or Tuesday. And since I didn't go anywhere Monday, it had to have been Tuesday. And so I'm in communication with my doctors and of course, Gabby (laughs) and, uh, you know, we'll figure out what to do as we move forward because, you know, the doctors don't want me to come into the office just yet. So, yeah. which is weird. You're sick and, you know, you can't see a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's weird. So anyway, getting back uh, to news and the paper and you brought up the story. I have an interesting story. And yes, it emanated out of the county executive's office. You know, when 9-11 happened and we're experiencing the 20th anniversary, there's a lot of people who live in Carmel and Mayapak who are New York City firemen, New York City policemen, so on and so forth. So on the day that the towers fell, there was many of these folks who were maybe not on duty. They were up here back home who like turned around and went back down to work on, quote unquote, the pile, pile with a capital P. And this story it talks about how the 20th anniversary has is evoking a lot of memories of that day for these guys. And they tell their stories. It's beautifully written. And they tell their stories about those days in the aftermath of 9-11 and what they did. It's like a first-person account. We have three different folks or Two of them are from Mayapak, one's from Carmel. And, you know, I think our readers are really going to enjoy hearing their stories about what these heroes basically did in the wake of the attack, 
you know, and uh, did they get sick at all? Because I know they, they talk a little bit about the 9-11 syndrome with them. Um, well, it doesn't go into that. Most of them are fine. The three people that are featured in the story are fine. I was curious the same way. One guy is a detective, Pete Conlin. The other two are FDNY guys, and they fortunately did not suffer any of those effects, you know. Um, Thank God, yeah. Yeah, but the effects they did suffer is more, you know, the trauma and the post-traumatic stress that working on the pile day in and day out did to them, you know, trying to find survivors. And I think our readers are going to really enjoy this story. It's quite detailed. You know? The other thing that we do every year, August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. Every year, except last year when we were in the throes of the pandemic, there's a Mayapak woman named Laura Primavera who lost her son probably like 10 years ago now, to a heroin overdose. And she's turned this International Overdose Awareness Day into a huge local event where they meet on August 31st on that evening in the Chamber Park gazebo. And they have guest speakers. Susan Solomon from Drug Crisis in Your Backyard was one of the keynote speakers this year. People from Arms Acres, they provide resources. They have a slideshow of friends and relatives who have passed from drug overdose. It's very compelling. Then they have a candlelight vigil where they have the lighting of the candles, which is always dramatic. And so they were able to do it again this year. They're back on track. And we have some great photos of that event. That'll be in our center spread and uh, people be able to uh, revisit that, you know, now that we're back on track again. You know, I, th I think it's remarkable how in 10 years, you know, where we've come as a society, because really, you know, the people who 10 years ago, and I'm thinking of, you know, Susan Salomon and Carol Christensen with uh, not just Susan, you know, um, obviously Steve as well, Stephen mm -hmm. and Sue, uh, Susan and uh, Carol and Luke uh, Christensen, and um, with the drug crisis in our backyard, you know, when other folks who got involved and, you know, 10 years ago, you know, it was very, very, very brave to come out and talk about their son's overdosing. You know, it's, it's still brave to talk about it, you know, obviously. Yeah. But, um, you know, they really paved the way. These organizations, these local organizations really paved the way, I think, in New York State you know, even nationally, to kind of reduce the stigma and realize it is, it's, a, it's a disease. That's the whole idea behind drug crisis in our backyard. And what Lauren is trying to do with International Overdose Awareness Day is remove the stigma, let people understand that this sort of thing crosses all socioeconomic levels. It's not like homeless people cowering in alleyways, you know, with dirty hyper. It's upper middle class, it's professionals, you know, the recent uh, epidemic was spawned, you know, and heroin was spawned by the overprescribing of things like Oxycontin. And, you know, it's incredible. And the whole idea was to remove the stigma, let people understand that this is a health issue, not a moral issue. And they've done a great job. There's still a long, long way to go because there's still people out there. And I've seen comments on Facebook that are deplorable that still try to lump these people in as degenerates and losers and things of that nature. So what Lauren tries to do with her event is, you know, they have guest speakers who get up there and tell their stories. They're very poignant, provide 
all the guests with resources where they can turn to and the amount of stuff that's available nowadays compared to just like 10 years ago. It's astounding how far we come, but my God, we still got a long way to go. I think you're right. People can be very cruel on social media. And I feel like if you can't say something face-to-face with someone and have a real conversation, don't say it on social media either. It's just, it's horrible. Yeah. Well, it's ignorance, you know, it's just a lack of information. Yeah. And uh, I guess, is there anything else that you, any of you would like to bring up before uh, we close the episode? Yeah, this week, well, yesterday, if we're recording this on September 2nd, so on September 1st, I interviewed two members of the Kona Volunteer Ambulance Corps. You know, I'm just going to run through some of my stories I have coming up, and, and that's one of them. The You know, they, they talked about the harrowing first days of the pandemic where they didn't know a lot and they were scared and uh, it was very anxiety inducing for them. And they talked about how it was difficult because they couldn't even really get new members because they couldn't have any orientations or anything during that period. But now that they can accept new members, they're always looking for new members. And I think in talking to them, one of the things that struck me the most is that I think when people think of volunteerism, especially something like this, the ambulance corps, they think of it as a sacrifice. I have to schedule six hours, eight hours a week. It's a sacrifice of my time. But to hear them tell it, it's really a sense of belonging and they, they enjoy it. They think it's fun. All the friends they've made, they're meeting people on their worst days. But at the same time, they really enjoy the sense of camaraderie. They met people that have lived in their community for decades and they never met them and now they're friends. So they don't view it as a sacrifice. They view it as something they get to do, not have to do. And uh, I think that's really important for people to understand. I'm assuming the same thing, obviously, with you know volunteer firefighting. I know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, totally. With volunteer firefighting, volunteer ambulance corps, um, just great organizations, great people who volunteer for them. And another upcoming story is I interviewed uh, Yepi Yarnit so I hope I'm saying that right. He's from Denmark. He's a brewer. He founded a brewery over there and then he moved it over to New York called Evil Twin. It's a very popular brewery in New York City. He lives in Wakabuck, which is a hamlet of Lewisboro. He sat down with me for an interview about his uh, brewery and I thought that's a cool story. It's coming in next week's Katona Lewisboro Times. And finally, I just got a tip while we were on this podcast that Par 3 Golf Course over in Yorktown is severely flooded. So I'm going to run out of here and go take a photo of it because it's interesting because right now it's actually being reviewed by the planning board and it's being held up over environmental concerns, particularly uh, that of the stream and the flooding (laughs) issues. So um, if it truly is flooded, I think that's proof positive of the planning board's concerns there. So I'm going to go over and check that out. And obviously what the rains we had last night were anomaly, but you kind of have to plan for the anomaly. You have to plan for the worst. And, and I mean, this is definitely a little ironic. And it, it also seems, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm speaking at a turn here. It looks like that facility did a bunch of stuff before approval processes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a long history that goes in with the Par 3 golf course in Yorktown. It used to operate as Shallow Creek Golf Course, but I think it closed around 2007. When I was a kid, my dad took me there. It was very popular in the community. And then it shut down in 2007, has not operated since. It's town-owned parkland. So about five or six years ago, they leased it out again. And unfortunately, the person who was spearheading that effort passed away from cancer. And so it was taken over by another person claiming he that, you know, he did business with him. So, you know, the town gave this new guy the lease. Safe to say it has not gone smoothly. You know, there's a lot of uh, puns you can make with golfing saying it's stuck in the rough, uh, stuff like that. I've made them many times in my stories. And so basically I see the slow golf clap from Tom over there. Yes. You know, one of the one of the first things they did that was just 
they basically clear cut about what they estimated to be about 80 trees. I think that was what the conservation board estimated it to be about. And they did this without any sort of permit or approval. And they just clear cut a bunch of trees on the property. And uh, it's kind of the thing where you, you know, do something first and ask forgiveness later. Um, well, right now they're, they're kind of, they've proposed a tree mitigation plan, which would require a lot of tree and shrub and plant replanting. And right now it's being reviewed by the planning board at this very moment. And uh, that's really held it up for a while. Are there it, any it consequences just, to doing things that need a permit without the permit? You know, it really depends on the town. The town can find them. The town can do all sorts of things. But in this case, the town is kind of in an interesting position because they are the, they're leasing the property. They own the property. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of, they did it all backwards in the sense that they performed all the construction and now they're reviewing the site plan. Usually it's the other way. So basically this thing was a little, it, it was not well executed from day one. I'm trying to choose my words carefully, uh, but it was not well executed from day one. And the planning board is kind of in an imperfect situation where they're reviewing work that's already been done in a sense and, and then having to, and that's why one of the reasons it's taken so long is that you know, and right now they're really fixed on the environmental concerns, especially there's a stream that bisects the property that is of vital importance to a healthy ecosystem there. So they're talking about, you know, all these sorts of trees to shade the stream and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that's basically what we're dealing with. Uh, I think a lot of people are antsy. They want to go play on this golf course. But if it's covered in water, I guess you can't. But I think that's something the planning board will have to deal with. They'll have to, um, they'll have to work with their environment. They'll have to work with their environment. It it's a nine-hole par three golf course, yes. It has a clubhouse and a practice range. I have to say, you know, having played a little golf of the last few years, I think nine holes is a perfect amount. <laughs> Once you get past nine, you're like, I, I don't know. I just get a little impatient. Oh, I, 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 play, I played 18 and I walked it the first round I got out. And it made me realize how horribly out of shape I am. Yeah, well, it's it, it actually it could be good exercise if you're walking that course 18 holes. That is definitely very good exercise. That I doubt. And I think everyone's excited to see it open. I have no uh, as a Yorktown resident. I think it'd be fun to go back there. And you know, I'm on, I'm not a huge golf guy, so like you said, a par three nine hole golf course is probably perfect for me, someone like me. And I hope it opens soon. And I hope they uh, do their due diligence. And I'm, and I'm sure they will. The planning board uh, is very good over there. So, you know, I think that so right now we're just waiting. I think it's going to be discussed at the next planning board meeting. So we'll see. Great. So before we let Brian uh, rush out to take some photos, anything else that anyone wants to add? Well, we, we have a golf store, a golf course story too. the Putnam County golf course in Mayapak has had a really, really busy year. They've had a couple of people who made holes in ones. Wow. I have a story about that. Yeah. And their golf pro has, uh, he gives lessons and he's given lessons to a couple of Mayapak high school kids who have since gone on to get golf scholarships to, uh, to college where they're playing division one golf. So, uh, we have a story about, and from what I'm telling tea times are at a premium over there, it's quickly becoming one of the, one of the most sought after golf courses in the region. So I, I played so a Putnam golf plenty times and I'll tell you, it's a beautiful course. I love it. I think it's a great course and definitely, and they also have awesome concerts over there as well. So uh, they, they've got yeah, yeah, the Friday night barbecue series is, you know, people don't know about that for 40 bucks. You can go and listen to amazing music. They have great bands, all you can eat barbecue, a cash bar, and you can sit in your lawn chairs and just enjoy a beautiful night out of 
of rock and roll and good barbecue. <laughs> now, no, Bob, I don't mm. know if you're aware. If you get a hole in one, it's actually your responsibility as a person who got hole in one to buy a round of drinks for everyone at the golf course. I'm kind of aware of that tradition. It's kind of funny in the article that we have about the hole in ones. It describes, you know, obviously what hole it happened on, what kind of club the golfer was using and what kind of ball he was using. So, you know, because, you know, I'm told golfers love these details about, you know, like, what were you using when you got your hole in one? So all that information is in the article. So now, now, now I feel bad. I don't have a golf story for this week. (laughs) I forgot about it until Brian brought up his. So, well, uh, gentlemen, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your week. We have an early deadline. So uh, I guess we'll, we'll jump off and, and get to work. That's right. Thanks right. a lot. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks, okay. guys. Yep. Brian, enjoy your vacation. Where yeah, you have, going? have a good time, Now, I'm going to Phoenix and then to uh, oh. Southern California after that. Going to see our 10th Major League Ballpark, Chase Field, oh. see the uh, hapless D-backs. Well, well. Oh, okay. I've actually <laughs> been there when it was known as the Bob, you know, so yes. <laughs> uh, when they beat the Yankees in the World Series, I was there the following year, and it's a beautiful park. So enjoy. I'm excited for it. Thank you. Take care. Bye, guys.